Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University. I am host of the Guidelines podcast. My co-host tonight uh, is Dr. Uh, Gabrielle Santangelo. And our topic tonight is a guidelines paper uh, entitled Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Perioperative Spine, Preoperative Nutritional Assessment. Uh, I have the privilege uh, and honor of welcoming to our podcast tonight, Dr. Erica Besson. She is the first author of this paper and will be telling us uh, all about it. So it should be a great learning experience. And so to start off, I'll ask uh, her to give us an overview of the manuscript and then we'll uh, turn it over to some questions. So go right ahead. Thank you. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with this group to talk about some of the important work the guidelines committee has done, particularly around pre-op, peri-op, and post-op uh, spine care, thanks to the CNS and to this podcast for allowing me the opportunity. Again, my name is Erica Bisson. I'm a professor of neurosurgery and adjunct professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Utah, as well as uh, serve as the executive medical director for our medical group there. So I'm going to start by saying uh, the guidelines experience is a bit near and dear to my heart. I've spent the vast majority of my career focused on um, outcomes research, and this really lends itself to us really understanding how we do best for our patients. I think Sanjay Dahl, Dan Ho, Praveen Mumineni, who really headed this guidelines effort, really wanted to put a lot of emphasis on how we take care of spine patients in the most comprehensive way, starting from when we first see them in the ambulatory setting and rolling all the way through their care um, under, uh, under our episode. So having said that, I'm gonna dive right into this particular paper, which is looking at nutritional assessment and how we evaluate somebody's not only nutritional status, but what the impact of their nutrition on their outcomes in the um, after spine surgery are. So as, uh, as with all the other guidelines, we had a task force and evaluated the literature specifically directed at three questions around uh, preoperative nutritional assessment. The first one was what preoperative serologic studies of nutritional status and the timing of these studies are predictive of adverse events after spine surgery? The second was, are there preoperative non-serologic assessments that are also predictive of adverse events? And then the third question was, in patients who are malnourished, is there a preoperative treatment or regimen that can decrease the risk of postoperative adverse events? 
Now I'll tell you, we were pretty broad in our initial definitions of what constitutes an adverse event after spine surgery. We all know that there are a lot of both modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors that impact patients after even a simple spine surgery like a lumbar microdiscectomy all the way through a multi-level fusion surgery for correcting a deformity. So when we uh, culled the literature, we really wanted to focus on the adult population, just the spine population in particular, and then any assessment of neurologic status. Uh, we had 105 articles that we sent for full review of the committee, and we included only 13 because they were specific. Despite there being a lot of literature on nutritional assessment in GI surgery, colorectal surgery, the spine literature at the time we wrote the guidelines was um, a little void of significant uh, backing for assessing nutritional status. So to talk a little bit about the first question, which is what serologic studies are there? And what is the most predictive of adverse events? I just wanted to kind of highlight the three that are most often used, which are prealbumin, albumin, and total lymphocyte count. I will tell you that historically, the older papers really focused on using albumin as a predictor of nutritional status less than an albumin uh, serum level of less than 3.5 is usually indicative of being malnourished. Having said that, a lot of the newer papers really use prealbumin, which is uh, a more acute measure of someone's nutritional status, and particularly in the acute, not only preoperative period, but also perioperative period. When we looked at those three and then evaluated which adverse events they were most associated with, there were really three that came out in the spine literature. One was surgical site infection or wound complication, not surprising, the most reported on. The second was non-union, which you can imagine is also a healing property. It's bony healing, but healing nonetheless. And the third was hospital readmissions, just as an indicator of increased morbidity that goes along with the association with uh, being malnourished. The, the, we had the most literature looking at surgical site infection and wound complications. I think there was at least five papers that specifically looked at this. And both using prealbumin and albumin, we saw that individuals who were malnourished in multiple studies were up to three times as likely to experience a deep surgical site infection, even requiring a reoperation. As far as the non-union, there was only one study that really looked at this and really kind of highlighted the bone turnover markers more than the nutritional status. But nicely, they looked at CAT scans in patients undergoing spinal fusion surgery and were able to, with CTs, assess bony healing at the year mark. Small study, but they did see that of all the other factors that a preoperative preoperative albumin that was low or less than 3.5 was an independent predictor of non-union. 
which, you know, again, we're trying to think of these events as things we, that if there is a modifiable risk factor, we want to do everything to optimize before surgery. The third thing I mentioned we looked at was hospital readmissions, and there were two studies, both level two, that looked at unplanned readmissions in patients who were malnourished comparatively to those who were not. They used, again, albumin levels. And in this one, they saw a 2.7 in one study and in the other, a three times higher risk of readmission. Again, not specific to wound complications, but overall complications after a spine surgery. We did also look at specific patient populations, one, the elderly, and two, the adult spinal deformity surgery. You know, we not every elderly patient is malnourished, obviously, but these are a particularly susceptible population for increased morbidity after spine surgery when they have other comorbidities, diabetes, end-stage renal disease, congestive heart failure. And in several studies we saw in the elderly population, being malnourished increased your odds of having several different kinds of complications, including major medical complications, mortality, post-operative infections, and wound dehiscence, all which impact the elderly that are malnourished um, differentially. I also mentioned adult spinal deformity surgery. There were uh, two papers that looked at this specific population. Again, we think of the invasiveness of a surgery as a, as a predictor of increased complications. I think last I looked in the adult spinal deformity literature, you know, uh, upwards of 30% complications after surgery, even in the healthiest of patients, you add malnourishment or low albumin, low prealbumin on top of that, and you're gonna see that it's an independent risk factor. One study looking at the American College of Surgeons National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, which is the NISQIP registry, showed that being malnourished increased the rate of mortality for patients having adult spinal deformity surgery on the order of 15 times the risk pretty significant. So at the end of the day, to answer our first question, most of the studies used either prealbumin or albumin as a marker, which was our original question, but clearly linked the two of those to very specific risks and complications after spine surgery. The second question that I said the task force assessed was are there other non-serologic assessments of nutritional status that are predictive of adverse events after spine surgery? Now I'm gonna say, unfortunately, there was no literature on this in the spine literature to answer that very specific PICO question. Having said that, there are measurements in other surgical lit literature that have been used, including thigh circumference, arm circumference as easy measures and prognostic indicators of someone's nutritional status. The other two things that I just wanna comment on are 
two scales that have been developed, again, not vetted well in the spine literature, and we did not include in this paper, but I want to mention one is called the mini nutritional assessment, and the other is the prognostic nutritional index. These are things you can do in your office. I think a lot of us are low to add another blood test to you know, the lab panel to assess someone's nutritional status and we do a little bit of the eyeball test. I would tell you, we need to be much more thoughtful on how we're assessing patients so that we can really discuss expectations uh, after the surgery with our patients. So at the end of the day, that second question, we uh, did not have a recommendation. There was insufficient evidence no literature to support that in spine surgery, but something we can talk about afterwards and that I would advocate we start thinking about as, a, um, as something we should be doing with all our spine patients. The third question was in patients with poor nutritional status, is there a preoperative regimen that decreases the risk of adverse events? And again, paucity of literature on this particular topic within the spine surgical population. We did find one article and I'll talk a little bit about that, but I'm gonna tell you, you know, the upshot in advance, insufficient evidence to support a guideline or a recommendation for this. But I would like to talk a little bit about the one paper we did find and then kind of think about where this can go in the future. Uh, there was a randomized uh, control trial that looked at a multimodal nutritional management plan for patients undergoing lumbar fusion surgery. And essentially what they did was uh, the, the group, the intervention group got protein powder and a carb carbohydrate powder at intervals both before and immediately after surgery as well as did an early refeeding protocol or an early feeding protocol after surgery. It was a small study, caveat number one. <laughs> caveat number two, they did it in nutritionally replete individuals. So nobody in this study was malnourished. In fact, in order to be randomized, you actually had to have normal nutritional status based on your albumin level. The end result was they did see a decrease in the amount of albumin transferred or transfused post-op. They had a lower incidence of multiple metabolic abnormalities like hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hypocalcemia, and they did have a shorter length of stay in these patients. They did not see a difference between surgical site infections, either superficial or deep or wound dehiscence, which you might expect, but again, small sample size, short study. So at the end of the day, we do not have good randomized studies or even level two studies evaluating specific nutrition protocols or feeding, uh, feeding protocols for our patients in spine surgery, uh, but it, there is an incredible opportunity. So I'm gonna pause there um, and open the discussion up. Great, uh, that was a, a phenomenal summary of, of your paper. 
I, and I do have questions as I'm sure Dr. Santangelo has. What, one of the first ones that jumps out is you made a few comparisons to other uh, surgical subspecialties. I, th I think and it sounded like maybe a colorectal was one. And what, why is it that you think that, that some of the data you were looking for in spine is more prevalent in these others? Do they just do more cases? Has this been something that more interwoven into their training? And so they've they've just had a longer history of looking at these types of, of variables in, uh, in, in their surgery, or is it, is it an abdominal surgery issue? So they're already there, they're thinking about that kind of stuff. Excellent question. I think it's a, a combination of most of what you said, but probably predominantly, it's because they're thinking of the gut and refeeding and how they get the gut moving more quickly, to be honest, after these types of surgeries. Whereas I would say spine surgery in, in as a whole um, and as a specialty, particularly within neurosurgery, even combined neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery, we have focused a lot on uh, our clinical outcomes after surgery with other modifiable risk factors like smoking status, diabetes, opioid use. We haven't as much done as much work on the nutritional side. Again, we're not in the most of the time, not all the time, we're not in the abdomen. <laughs> and uh, therefore, I, I think this is now coming to light and will be something we'll study pretty vigorously moving forward. When we talk about the studies that you looked at amongst the 13 studies, what was what was the range of the ends, if you will, in those? Like, how, like were these studies with dozens of patients, hundreds of patients? I mean, how, how well-powered were they? So the um, kind of the one-offs with the randomized control trial, small study, I think less than 100 patients. Actually, I'm just looking 187 patients in that study. But a lot of the things that I, that I talked about answering our first question, which is which serologic study, those were large studies. I think we had a few registry studies, as I mentioned, the NISQIP database, mm -hmm. as well as some other, I, I believe the national inpatient sample might've been used. We had another study with over 8,000 patients. And these were really the ones where it started identifying what are the modifiable risk factors associated with adverse outcomes after spine surgery. So huge cohorts, really being able to glean predictive factors by doing multivariable analysis that controls for all of the different comorbid conditions. If, if you think about kind of all these variables, you mentioned, mentioned the multivariate analysis, where would you, based on, you, you know, all the work that, that you and the rest of your team put in on, on this project, where would you place things like albumin and, and nutritional status? But does it, does it, is it second to smoking? Is it is it third? Does it go behind age? You know how how should we conceptualize nutrition on sort of the priorities, or or is it just too are they are they too intermingled to really separate it like that? Is that too simplified? That is a fantastic question, and I'm gonna say I um, your last comment probably hit the nail on the head. Overly simplistic. There are so many things that go into decision-making 
and optimizing patients for spine surgery. And there, you know, I, I, I think most people who do spine surgery try to hit every single one of them, you know, hemoglobin A1C less than, you know, XN, no smoking and, you know, all the other things, including control of anxiety and depression or other psychiatric or psychological comorbid conditions, optimizing somebody's home situation so that they can recover the best at home. So I think it is another thing in our assessment that we should be recognizing and impacting right along the others. I wouldn't put it underneath or above. I'm going to give my co-host an opportunity to ask a question or two, Dr. Santangelo. Hi, I'm uh, Gabrielle Santangelo. I'm a PGY5 at the University of Rochester. Thank you so much, Dr. Brisson. I really appreciated this um, paper and what it sought out to to show. I had a couple questions. One sort of um, just jumps off of Dr. Elder's question. So the study period was really until 2019 and ERAS has become a really big thing in a lot of programs. Do you think that when you do the five-year update of this guideline, that's going to change what you found? That is a perfect segue into one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is exactly ERAS protocols. So I, I would say yes, yes, and yes. Absolutely, it will change. I did a brief dive into the literature this last week in preparation for this podcast, kind of looking. I know we have a lot of literature on ERAS protocols in spine surgery. In fact, there was an entire neurosurgical focus dedicated to ERAS protocols in spine surgery. But after combing through all of that, there is still, while it remains that we should have a preoperative, there's strong, you know, strong uh, support of preoperative assessment of nutritional status. There is not an optimal timing of doing any kind of intervention, either preoperatively or postoperatively. They discuss early feeding after spine surgery now as having a lot of uh, good backing of literature to support the sooner we get people eating post-op, the better off they are. But as far as a specific protocol between carbohydrate loading, protein loading, any of those in the ERAS protocols, it's all over the place. In fact, there's an ERAS task force that recently published guidelines relative to spine surgery, not in the spine sur surgery literature, but in the ERAS literature. And again, they even commented that right now we're all over the place when it comes to doing some intervention preoperatively. Right. The, um, the other question I had is you mentioned being able to assess a patient in your clinic without having to send another lab. Um, and it's interesting to me, the one larger study that addressed age and sort of looked at the older population found a, a pretty low rate of malnutrition in the patients who received elective spine surgery in what was an older cohort. And it made me feel like especially when you compare to the 8.6% malnourished in the deformity cohort, that perhaps these patients were just being deemed as unfit for surgery and so not getting elective spine surgery. Um, I didn't know if that is potentially the reason for such a low rate of malnourishment um, in some of those studies, in your opinion, or if you think it actually is that low. I think you're correct. 
I don't think it's that low. I think it's that um, likely individuals who are malnourished have other comorbid conditions that then precluded them uh, being included into the surgical cohort that perhaps they got more conservative management and didn't end up with surgery. Um, I think adult spinal deformity, um, I, I would believe those numbers are a little bit more spot, spot on when it comes to the incidence because um, deformity is not something, you know, it's not a uh, uh, lumbar stenosis where patients might be able to be managed uh, a little bit more medically for longer periods of time um, when people are pretty debilitated. Uh, they fall into that other cohort, uh, debilitated by their spine disease. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that perhaps that estimate is a little bit on the low side. You know, other things that um, that it, were not part of this guidelines, but also go along a little bit with malnutrition is vitamin D. And we know we've published on that vitamin D levels are low in spine patients, like 30% are either borderline or uh, hypo uh, vitamin D. And so it's amazing. And that, that's a little bit also of a marker of overall health. We're also starting to look at things like frailty. You see that popping up in the literature right now. I think there is so much more to assessing an, indi in, an individual aside from a, um, a number in their age that we really need to understand their physiologic reserve when we're going to intervene surgically. And I think all of these make a difference. We're running a little bit low on time. Um, I did want to ask, um, you know, uh, uh, one last question. If you had, what is the next step? What is, if, if you're putting together a group to, to do the next uh, clinical trial or, or study, what, what's the question that you think really needs to be asked next on this topic? What preoperative intervention impact for malnutrition impacts outcomes. So would you do that study, but with an act with actually malnourished patients? Uh, you mentioned that study criteria for inclusion was an albumin 3.5 or greater. Is that, um, is that what you're thinking? No, I, if I had my druthers, I would do this not as a randomized control trial. I would do this as a registry-based effort where you had several engaged sites who are doing spine surgery, like we've done historically with some of the registries, uh, spine registries. And I'd see if everyone would adhere to a specific ERAS protocol in both malnourished and normally nourished individuals and look at their outcomes in a very concrete way. Well, with the last 30 seconds or so, what did we miss? What do you want to tell us that, that, we, that we didn't ask? We need to look, pay attention, assess your patients in a meaningful way, and then look at their outcomes. Great. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Bisson for joining us uh, tonight for our podcast. I also I uh, want to emphasize uh, a thank you to not only her, but her entire team uh, who put together the, uh, the spine uh, perioperative management uh, guidelines. It is a, 
immense amount of work. And for those of you with any interest at all, you should really take a look. There's a wealth of information. Uh, it's a phenomenal job done on a, on a very difficult and uh, arduous task. So I congratulate her and her team for bringing this project to fruition. Uh, thank you also to Dr. Santangelo for uh, joining me as our resident co-host tonight. For our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And with that, I'll bid everyone good night.